I think that uh, we need more grants that allow people to go in completely different directions. More grants that say, you've been really successful, now go somewhere new. Are you working in research, trying to do the best science you can? Are you a team leader, a research assistant, postdoc, PhD student, or any other type of scientist? Are you looking for a place where you can sit, relax, and listen to inspiring people? Well, we have good news for you. You've just found what you're looking for. Hi, everybody. My name is Renaud Pourpre. And I am Jonathan Weitzman. Welcome, Welcome to, to The, the Lonely Pipette. Helping scientists do better science. My name is Matthew Weitzman. I study virus-host interactions and genome integrity at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia and the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. And I am excited and slightly intimidated to share my tips with the lonely pipette. Matthew Weitzman grew up in Britain and graduated with a degree in genetics from Leeds University and a PhD in molecular virology from Oxford. He was a Fogarty Fellow at the uh, U.S. National Institutes of Health and was a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Pennsylvania. He started his independent lab as a faculty member uh, of the Salk Institute in La Jolla, California, and the University of California in San Diego. And in 2011, he moved uh, back to the University of Pennsylvania, where he is now professor and runs a lab at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, also called CHOP. His lab uses biochemistry, genetics, and cell biology to study human DNA viruses as model systems to investigate fundamental cellular processes. At CHOP, he has uh, initiated many grant writing groups under the umbrella of the Grant Proposal Success or GPS program. He's received many awards, including the CHOP Faculty Mentoring Award, Mentoring Research Trainees, and the Penn Outstanding Faculty Mentor Award in 2020. Matt, Thanks for coming to share your tips with the Lonely Pipettes. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here. It's sort of strange to watch someone who has your face and voice describe your bio. <laughs> so, so maybe we should start by saying that, that, uh, that Matt and I are, are identical twins. So that <laughs> it's going to be very difficult to hear the differences <laughs> between the voices. Je Jonathan, was it difficult to, to write this bio where, where you're well, it does uh, feeling? <laughs> it does seem really weird to read it because, uh, yeah, and we, I was in many of those places with him. We started in the, in the womb and we <laughs> spent time together at various places. Yes. yes. Matt, uh, you said that you were listening, you were listening to the Lonely Pipette for season one. Probably you know which question I will start <laughs> with, uh, but I will say it again just for the, the purpose of it, the success of it. So to start with, uh, can you tell us how you decided to become a scientist? So I guess the easiest answer would be I followed my twin brother. <laughs> it was 20 minutes ahead of me in everything he did. <laughs> We grew up in a house uh, with a father who was a scientist, a professor of biochemistry. And so I think we grew up uh, surrounded by the ideas of scientific research. I think I, uh, when I was at school, I enjoyed uh, biology and I also did chemistry and math. I enjoyed the biology more and that led me into my first degree, which was in genetics. So I think uh, I remember sitting down with my father to decide uh, where I should apply and what I should apply to do in college. And uh, he asked me, I remember we sat in the lounge. I'm not sure whether he did this with all, all of his boys, but he did it with me. We discussed, he asked me what I enjoyed in school and I enjoyed biology the most. And then he asked me what it was about biology. And at the time, it was the stories of Mendel and his peas. Uh, so I studied genetics at the University of Leeds. So I think that that was potentially the moment when I realized I was actually going to embark on this journey. But whether I would stay on the journey, I think, took a long, long time before I knew the answer to that. May still be working on that. I have to ask it. Uh, as twin brothers, were you discussing about going into research? Were there discussion around, around this type of career together? So we did similar things in school. Um, I, although we also, in addition, in England, you have to specialize very early. So we had selected uh, mathematics, biology, and chemistry as 
sort of the three topics that we did in uh, for A level, that advanced level before we left high school. Uh, but we also had independent interests outside of that. Uh, I was actually really interested in history and geography at that time, and Johnny was much more successful in his art uh, than I was. Um, but I, I don't know we uh, that we actually defined that we would both go into this. I think we sort of both ended up in it, perhaps accidentally. And not all the four of us ended up in science, although all four of us ended up in positions that are in some ways attached to academics and our father is an academic. So I think we were influenced by the academia perhaps mm -hmm. more than the science. There is a fam family values around it. <laughs> We're in the family business, yeah. <laughs> Maybe this will be a question for later. Uh, collaboration between brothers and everything but first we can't discuss competition now <laughs> <laughs> so that is laughing a lot <laughs> if you want to know about the competition you have to ask our wives <laughs> <laughs> why because <laughs> they will both tell you i think that we're highly competitive although it, he johnny and i were both saying no we're not competitive at all <laughs> but this is good competition this is uh, like i think i think this career has an element of competition built into it, whether you like it or not. Uh, and it doesn't have to be, it can be very healthy competition, I think. Yeah, exactly. But it's built into the, into the academic pursuit. As long as it pushes you to, to the top, I mean, this is also a good thing. A bad competition could be one that just take you down. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, during this time, if you look, everyone is talking a lot about the competitive, uh, constant pressure of this field and i think when you see someone very similar to you who's in the field uh, there's a natural tendency to compare but let's not talk about competition <laughs> so if you had not become a biologist um what would you have become so i i'm still trying to work out what i'm good at uh, i can tell you that the things if i were to leave now i would consider During the career, I've done a lot of conference organizing, and I think that's one thing I've really enjoyed. Uh, and I think if I were not doing this, I would like to do, which is bringing together people to share scientific ideas uh, and interact in a social environment uh, outside their normal habitat. So uh, that's something I've done, and I think if I weren't doing this, I would like to do that. I've explored different careers at every step, so I interviewed for um, the first editorial assistant position at Nature Genetics when I was a postdoc. And I went to look at jobs in industry when I was also a postdoc. So I've explored other uh, careers. The other thing I think I'd do if I were to leave this would, if finances were not an issue, I'd love to work for a nonprofit, uh, helping people and using the sort of logistical organizational skills that I've picked up in academia to uh, impact uh, people outside and help a, a group. And then uh, the other thing I'd like to do, uh, I'm not sure I would have ever been good enough to do it, would be uh, to run a restaurant, Ooh. cook and uh, sort of like running a lab. But, uh, and actually, I guess at this point, I wouldn't be in the kitchen cooking, just like I'm not in the lab doing experiments. But uh, I really like the idea. It's a creative pursuit. Uh, Johnny and I both cook and um, it would be fun to do it without the pressure of... Uh, of having to make a restaurant work. But I like the idea of serving people and uh, interacting with clients and also having people at the back who form a family to cook together. So that's great. That, that's easier than running a lab, right? I'm not sure. <laughs> My kids are convinced that when I retire, I'm going to open a restaurant. So. Oh, there you go. We could do that together. We could do conference organizing with great food. <laughs> If you if you need a teacher, my father is a cook teacher. So oh, uh, there you go. Yes, I remember that. It is true. Scientific conferences don't always have the best food. That would be good uh, to combine PIs cooking at meetings. I also want to do a cookbook that's called The Taste of Science that goes around the world, uh, talking to scientists in their kitchen as they talk about science and cook or something. I, I noticed that you didn't say. If I didn't do this, I wanted to be a podcaster. Well, I think you can do this <laughs> and be a podcaster exactly. as evidence. Exactly. I mean, I think the great thing about this career is that it's varied. Uh, we get to organize conferences. We get to uh, interview people. We get to give talks. We get to write, to edit. Every day is a different set of skills. So um, today I'm being interviewed for the first time on a podcast. <laughs> Um, but tomorrow I'm doing a 
workshop and webinar about how to write grants. So, you know, there are different things that we do every day. To me, that's one of the great things about this career. And pre-COVID, it involved a lot of traveling, other great things and interactions with people. I wish we were all in Paris, though, doing this together. <laughs> that would be good. <laughs> well, we should do. <laughs> so, so I know because I have watched your career that, that, that you have had moments of doubt. And so we wonder what, what sort of kept you, what kept you in science? What kept you going during those difficult times? Uh, so I, I realized as I was thinking about this that um, this is really a, a therapy session with Renault being <laughs> to help you and I talk through our insecurities and moments where we've considered other careers. Um, and I think it's still constantly in flux. So um, I was, a, as Johnny said, I was a postdoc here at the University of Pennsylvania. And at that time, I explored other careers. So I considered, should I get a med school and become a doctor? Uh, I realized that the chances of me getting into med school at the University of Pennsylvania were almost zero. And I said to my wife, I have a better chance of being on the faculty and teaching at the University of Pennsylvania, which I now do. Uh, so I also explored whether I should go to business school and consider jobs in um, industry. And as I said, in editing. And But I stuck with this because... Um, I love the flexibility of science. I like that we are always talking about new ideas. I like that we were always talking with young people. I like that ideas come from different places and our interactions with different types of people are constantly stimulating us. And I think there's very few careers that are as flexible where we get this privilege of being able to do whatever we want on a daily basis, always with new ideas and always exploring new directions with new people. So I think that that is really an amazing opportunity. And that's, I think, what's kept me going through this. Great. So we, we're going to talk a lot about, about mentoring because that's uh, you've got all these mentoring awards and I, and I know you're very invested in mentoring. First question is, what are mentoring practices um, that you use in your lab that you learn from your mentors? So I think you uh, observe things that work and you also often observe things that don't work. So I wish I could point to lots and lots of people who are great direct mentors for me, but I think that they came from lots of different avenues. In fact, I would say that my greatest source of uh, advice is one sitting in front of me now. Uh, <laughs> so I'm very lucky to have someone who knows what I'm going through because they're also going through it at the same time. And so I think using peers is actually the greatest uh, source of uh, help, advice, uh, mentoring. I really believe in peer-to-peer -peer mentoring and cascading mentoring, that we teach you how to help others, and then you will do that to help the people uh, you know, below you as they come up or with you as they come up, uh, or even perhaps above you. Uh, so mentoring up that those who uh, have more senior positions but could benefit from hearing our, our voices. For me, mentoring is different for everybody who I come into contact with. So uh, we have people at every level in my lab, so undergraduates or high school students uh, through to clinical fellows, um, people who are about to launch their own careers. And I'm also on mentoring committees. In the States, we set up mentoring committees for every junior faculty member. And that committee has five or six people and that committee comes together in our department. They come together every nine months and we write a report that actually goes to the head of the department. So they hear from some faculty who are guiding the junior faculty about uh, this career. And those are sort of some sort of formal structure, but we also have lots and lots of informal mentoring, you know, that takes place you know, over coffee and in the bar and, uh, and on your way walking to and from, from seminars, which is what we used to do, spend most, much of our time doing. So I think there's, there's mentoring happening all the time. There's the casual interactions that we have uh, that can be really influential for people's career. And then there's the more formal structure of here in the States. We have uh, thesis committees where you have a group of mentors, including your thesis mentor, but also other people from the university come together to advise you. And then we have these formalized mentoring committees. And I have people that I've met at conferences uh, over the years that I mentor on a regular basis. Um, some of them I help who are getting jobs. Some of them I help who are faculty members uh, writing their first grants. Johnny and I are doing something uh, that we're very, both very much enjoying. We're mentoring a, a young assistant professor in Switzerland that we've been doing over Zoom. And uh, 
he and I get on the Zoom and we uh, interact with her every month. Uh, and it's actually been a lot of fun. And, and we're both learning a lot, I think, from the process. So watching someone else go through the academic ladder and trials and tribulations, I think, is teaching us a lot about how we manage our, our own careers uh, and how we manage the people perhaps locally. Can you think of, um, of particular challenges that you encountered when you started uh, as a mentor? of students. And how did you how did you improve your style? So when I started my lab, I was, I think, because of the British system where we've moved through very quickly. Uh, we have you know relatively short university and very short PhD and no one does a master's. Uh, so I started a postdoc when I was young and that meant that I did two postdocs. By the time I started my lab, I was still very young and uh, felt very young and felt much more similar to the postdocs in the lab next door than to the PIs around me who were much more senior. So I think that there's a big transition as you move from postdoc to faculty. When you start, you're really like a postdoc. <laughs> You've just been given a lab. And so the postdocs you recruit into your lab are sort of very much closer to you in age and experience. So over the years, I think the biggest difference is the age between me and the people who are now um, my mentees directly in my lab. I would say that the biggest challenge, uh, and, and I think this comes up frequently on the Lonely Pipette, the biggest challenge is recruiting people into your lab. And I think at the beginning, that is particularly crucial that you get the right people into your lab, your first couple of postdocs, your first couple of students uh, and the tech. So the first two students actually had, were friends of each other. They were a year apart. We, we have our first big paper was the three of us, the two students and me. And I was very lucky to have two really smart, ambitious, hardworking, uh, creative people in the lab. And we, we were really like a team. Uh, in fact, the first paper that we worked on, big paper we worked on together, we were working around the clock. We, I was doing the night shift. And we, <laughs> we really had experiments like we would hand off to each other because we were there t together. And that, was the, that, experiment, that study was really exciting for us. Uh, for all three of us, I think. Uh, one of them now runs a lab at the National Institutes of Health after having spent some time in Europe uh, running a lab. And one of them is in industry, done incredibly well. How, how did you know how to pick them? Because like the two first, apparently you, 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 you made a good guess. How did you know that you had to pick them when you met them the first time? Or how did you... I was just lucky they picked me because <laughs> they, had, they had far more choices than I had. I actually had four students rotate in my lab. They do rotations in America. Short, and I was at University of California, San Diego, UCSD at the time. They did very short rotations, six weeks. Uh, so this is something that, that Johnny and I did not have when we were coming up. We didn't rotate in a lab. We sort of randomly picked some lab to do a PhD in without being able to test it. And they couldn't test us either. But in the States, people do rotations. And in uh, UCSD at the time, there were six weeks. In six weeks, I say, uh, you know, if you like the lab, it's long enough to, to get a sense of what the lab's like and, and uh, whether the questions are what you want to do and whether this is the right environment for you. If you hate the lab, six weeks is long enough. So uh, that was a short period <laughs> where we tested. Uh, so I actually had four amazing students rotate in my lab. And at the time... And they all hated it. <laughs> <laughs> they, 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 multiple people wanted to join the lab. And actually, I wish I'd taken two, but I felt like I wanted to stagger the lab. I think it is important to have not take everyone at, at the same time when you start to really have some staggering because when start, people start to leave, they all, <laughs> you want them to, they're, they're leaving to be staggered so that you can maintain momentum. Uh, so I sort of staggered it at the beginning. And then the postdocs, I was surrounded by uh, big labs. Uh, who had lots of people applying. And I went to one of the neighboring professors and said, could I have, could I see some people who are applying to his lab? And so he gave me a whole stack of uh, CVs and, and a manila <laughs> folder. I looked through them. I was really disappointed because most of them were really not good. And I thought, if this is what he's getting, it's going to be really hard. So uh, one, of, one or both of my first postdocs had applied to him. I looked at them when they were coming through and uh, they chose my lab, which uh, I think there are some great advantages to a small lab. I, I think a big lab is good for establishing your reputation and getting that name as you know a name that's going to write you a letter. But a small lab, when it's starting, is just an amazing experience to be there with the PI as they build a lab, 
Uh, you get your choice of projects. You get to lead uh, and you know set up the culture. And um, a young PI is really invested in their people. Mm. So actually, joining a small lab, I think, is really a good choice, uh, especially for graduate work. I think as a more advanced uh, PI now, it's actually hard to get students to come to my lab because uh, they they see this and they want to go to the young, exciting new PI. Um, but there are there are all sorts of benefits to a to a established uh, lab. Uh, sure. One of which mm-hmm. is you know you know the person knows how to do it. So when I re- rebuilt my lab here ten years ago, and I was recruiting students and postdocs, I told them that that we had the benefit of both. We were a new lab where you could have your choice of projects and establish the culture, but the PI was established and you knew that they were going to stick around. So, uh, mm-hmm. What about the other side now? What, what do you consider is bad mentoring advice that you have had or heard from others? What I advise uh, students when they're picking labs is that they have to look for three things. So the first is they have to know that the scientific questions being asked in the lab are going to be exciting enough for them they are going to grab them, that the type of science that's being done is really what they want to do. The second thing that they should think about is, is this environment what they want? Do they want a big lab? Do they want a small lab? Do they want to do biochemistry? Do they want to do dry uh, or wet lab type of science? So is the type of science and the environment that they're going to be in, is that going to sustain them uh, and keep them you know, occupied? Is that what they're looking for? And then the third thing I think they have to look at is the PI and the head of the lab. And they have to ask themselves, is this relationship and this chemistry going to work to have this person as my mentor for my PhD or beyond? And I think I'm doing the same thing. I'm asking, does this person bring new things and new ways of thinking and curiosity to my lab? Does this person fit in with the style? Do they bring some new technology? Do they fit in with the group? And fitting in with the group is really key to me. And I ask the same thing about the chemistry. Is this mm-hmm. chemistry going to work? Do I want to be the mentor for the rest of my career for this person? Uh, and so the chemistry in our relationship is really important. So I would say that both sides are asking the same types of questions or the same issues, but dif- from a different angle. For, for what I hear, uh, people should not try to, uh, to look like the, the best, all the, I mean, the best students or the best postdoc they have seen. They should look to be the best of themselves with their own specialities and try to fit in a, in a place where they can be really complementary. Like. So I, I think it's really important to be authentic uh, wherever you are. So I would say the same when you're leaving my lab as a postdoc and you're going to look at positions. I don't think you want to try and fit what you think that that department is looking for. I think you want to be who you are. Mm-hmm. And if who you are is what they want, great. If it's not the right fit, then you shouldn't go there. Uh, I've had uh, amazing students, really like phenomenal students, come to talk to me. And I've suggested, you know what, from w- what you're looking for, I would love you to be in my lab. But I think you're going to do better in a different lab. Because what you're looking for is, is going to fit better with another lab. And, and uh, we, I have a, um, a young, there's a young student on campus. He's actually also a twin. Uh, his twin brother's also on campus, and I directed him to another lab where he has excelled. Then he, he came to talk to me recently about looking at uh, other careers in uh, venture capital, and I actually directed him to a former trainee of mine who is also a twin, uh, <laughs> and they connected uh, so that he could explore uh, that, that career as well. So um, it, it's, I think it's important that you find the right fit, and my lab is not the right lab for every lab for every person you have to be the right fit you have to want to be here different every lab has you know a different thing that it gives you big lab small lab dry lab wet lab topic wise so it has to be the right fit mm. that's great to, to hear that this exchange of stack of cv that happened in the backstage of research is not just for collection this is like to find the, the good call to play for either fellow scientists or other teams or or your own team yeah and i just like i think when 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 uh, postdocs are coming through, our role as mentors is to promote them and tell a department that, that they should really look at the, this person because they are a good fit. So when I'm writing my letters for people who are postdocs who are leaving my lab, uh, I tailor those letters as well to wherever they're going. You know, you can put up a generic letter where every department can see the letter, but I write them tailored and personal each time because I think about the fit and I go to the department and see whether that's going to be the right place for them. 
So the other half of you of your job when you're not mentoring <laughs> is uh, you're really invested in helping um, scientists and colleagues uh, write improve their their grant writing skills. You've you've set up this uh, GPS initiative. So so how did you get into this? And tell us more about about what GPS is and how it works. When I started my lab in California. Uh, many years ago, I had actually never seen an R01 grant. And an R01 grant is the, the sort of classic driver of, uh, of American science. PI initiated a grant that you get. It's a five-year grant that you get from the National Institutes of Health. Uh, I had never seen one. And uh, I went there. And in, in order to run a lab in an in a institute um, like the Salk, you have to be able to recover your entire salary. And the running costs of running your lab. And so uh, you can't put all your salary on one grant because then you won't be able to write another grant and there won't be any money left to do the science. And so uh, the system is set up that if you want to run your whole lab, you need multiple grants. So I said to my new wife at the time, my current wife too, uh, but I said uh, that they are going to expect me to have uh, three R01s. Now, my, my wife is not a scientist. She's actually an architect. And she was very excited that we went to look at the Salk Institute because architecturally, it's a master building. So she said, okay, that's what you'll do. You'll have three R01s. <laughs> so neither of us knew really what that entailed. I, again, went to my uh, neighboring senior PIs and looked at their R01s. And they were, uh, it was easier for them at the time to write and get money and I couldn't write their type of grants, and uh, that wouldn't have helped me get funded. So I really was thrown in the deep end, and I learned how to write grants by myself. Mm -hmm. uh, my first R01, I actually, um, we had a faculty visiting, and I, I had been out that evening with a visiting faculty member, and uh, went back to the lab and worked. I worked late often, uh, worked till midnight or one o'clock, and then I came home and I said to my wife, um, I just need one more day, and this R01's going to be finished and I can submit it. And the due date was coming up very soon, but also her due date was coming up very soon. And she went into labor that night and we had our twins. And so uh, we, um, I actually <laughs> couldn't finish my grant. So I got, I got an extension on, the, uh, on my first R01. Uh, but I went through a lot of rejection. And um, at the time, it used to be that you would get what they used to call the pink slips. Uh, they still sometimes call them that. They used to come through the mail and they were pink and they would, uh, they would give a you your score. <laughs> and uh, a piece of paper through the mail that was pink, yeah. Um, uh, just like I had a green card when I came to America, which was actually a <laughs> green card. So I would get this, piece, this pink slip and I would uh, walk out to, to overlook the ocean and I would open it up and it was often a rejection, a number that would place me outside the funding. Area. So I think anyone who's successful at grant writing went through a lot of rejection before they got there. Uh, so I did get to the point where at the Salk I had three R01s, so I learned how to do it well enough to get funded. And that enabled me to build a group of 10 to 12 people mm -hmm. and uh, to have them funded. And then when I came to CHOP and Penn 10 years ago, uh, there were lots of changes going on in grants. So they went from 25 pages to 12, which was a very different style of grant. Uh, the biosketch, this bit that describes our CV, uh, was constantly changing. There were things that I had to uh, learn, and I needed to refund my lab. And I decided I did not want to do this alone, and I wanted to do it with a group because right. this could be a great group activity. We could learn from each other. We could give each other guidance. There were all these changes happening, and we could share our experience. So I formed a group. There were five of us. We were all mid-level people. Uh, we called it Grant Proposal Success, GPS, and we started to help each other. And we would, uh, you know, gossip and bitch about the department. And uh, <laughs> we would learn about... Was there whiskey? There was not whiskey. Uh, <laughs> but uh, we got together on a regular basis and we read each other's grants. So we learned about each other's science. And we learned who was, you know, tough, who was good at editing, who would really challenge hey. you. And this became a good group. It was everyone got funded. Uh, some were for the first time. And then I decided, let's expand this to early stage investigators, uh, what's called ESI, or I call it easy GPS, where we would help junior investigators in the same style. 
there would be some senior people there and some junior people would come and they would pitch their grant and we would give them feedback and we would they would all comment on each other's grant in a in a peer-to-peer -peer mentoring way and then we would learn about their science and they would learn about our experience uh, so we did that and actually we started quite small with people and I'm not, i wasn't sure we would get success so we opened this up ac across campus and people from different schools and different departments and different topics started to come and see us uh, and we as it formed a community that helped each other. And then someone in my lab was writing uh, what's called a K grant, which are training grants. And she said to me, why don't we form one of your GPSs to help me? So we got a few junior people and a few people a little more, bit advanced who'd written their own Ks and a few senior people. And we got together as a community to help them. And we called that a basic science K or basic GPS. They were very successful in that. And then the medical school asked me, uh, to come and talk to them in, in the Department of Medicine. So I went over and I talked to some of them and they said, this is amazing, uh, but we can't do it. And I said, why? why not? Why can't you do it? And they said, we don't have anyone with your energy and passion about this who could drive it. And I said, okay, I'll do it. So we formed something. They had something at the med school called the Richard Society, who are all the junior faculty on the tenure track in the med school. And I started to meet with the Richard Society every Wednesday morning. So me and a number of junior faculty. So now this has exploded across campus. So we have uh, ones that are age specific or you know level specific. So we do ones for trainees. Uh, we do a four part workshop uh, for trainees that meets every, uh, every year uh, where people get together and in between they form their own GPS groups. We have the Richards, which is uh, for people who are writing uh, R01s who are on the tenure track. And then we have a clinical GPS for more clinical projects. We have a radio GPS for radiology. We have a cancer GPS for cancer. Wow. We have a neuro GPS for neurology. These groups are starting all over campus. We have a path breakfast club that meets in uh, our department every month. For me, they're, they're amazing to see people come together in communities uh, where they share experience, support each other. You can see people re learn by reading other people's grants. Uh, you can see people's grants like change in front of your eyes as they you know discuss as a group uh, the project. And we've had amazing success and uh, impacted hundreds of people on campus and uh, really built uh, wonderful communities and been able to celebrate uh, some of that success. Uh, and it's cascading because uh, now the trainees in those labs are going to be uh, much better at it. And I think, you know, one thing to sort of convey is that um, this is not just about grants. This is about learning how to communicate your science. It's learning how to think through what the results would be. It's learning how to get the right collaborators into your group and, and your network. Uh, it's about reaching out to find those people on campus. It's about watching someone else's grant. The best time to see, the best, I'm a study section a chair at NIH. And when I come back from study section, every time I'm like, okay, now I know what makes a good grant because I've just <laughs> seen hundreds of them and I know what works. So uh, watching someone else's grant be discussed uh, really tells you a lot about your own grant. So what's the secret? Is there one secret ingredient? I would say the most important thing is community, is learning how to use your resources that are um, around you to read your grant, to give you feedback, to challenge you, and to be good collaborators if, if you know, there's techniques that, that you don't have. So I, I don't think that there's, you know, I don't want to make this formulaic. I think there are three things you have to convince, convey in a grant. So one is that you have an interesting question. And I don't think this has to change the world. It just has to be a question that I finished the first paragraph and I'm like, yeah, that's cool. <laughs> why, why do we not know the answer to that? This is, is Renault. That's cool. Uh, <laughs> why do we not know the answer to that? And, and you know, would, would Renault be interested in that? Uh, the second thing you have to convince the panel of is that your approach will answer that question, that you will fill that gap, that when we've invested in this project, that we will know the answer to that question. So that's important that you convey to me. If I get to the end of the aims page which describes the project and i'm like i still don't know is this in human cells or is this a mouse model or is this a a, a computational grant if i don't know that then i've no idea whether you're going to answer the question mm -hmm. so you're going to tell me that your approach will answer the question 
And I have to say, yeah, that's the right approach or no, that will not answer the question. So you have to set it up correctly. And then the third thing you have to convince me of is that you are the right person. And by that, I do not mean that there is no one else in the, in the world who could answer the question, but that you have the right resources, the right collaborators, the right approach that you are set up to address the question that you have asked. And so if you could do those three things compellingly, then I think, uh, and you can do them on one page, then I think your grant has a much better chance. Uh, I, I just enjoy uh, listening to you uh, because uh, I'm not still in research now. I, I'm just outside of research science communication and everything you're saying, it makes completely sense, even if I'm just outside right now. But, yeah, but Renaud, you, you're, still, you're still looking for fun. You're still looking for funding for your projects, right? Yes. And I'm, I'm working with scientists and this is, yeah, you, you completely got me, uh, Jonathan. This is where I was going to. It's... It makes really sense because uh, the free ingredient of it, this is also ingredients I'm looking for. It's not the same question, but it, it's, it's the same ingredient I'm looking for in my collaboration, in, in the way I, I'm, I'm, I'm writing grants, in the way I, I'm asking myself, am I enough clear or, on how I'm going to lead this project? Is the person that is going to read connect with the topic as uh, as much as I connect with it? And the the last thing is that like the the community you said that's that's uh, I really like it. It's you gather people and once you have this free ingredient and you test it on a community or you test it on someone, you just make it read to someone a human being can give you a feedback on it. It's it's sure that it will be better after it. So I I think you know one thing to sort of. Think about you're in science communication and, and this process of writing a grant. I, you know, I hear people say, I hate writing grants. So I would encourage people to forget about writing grants. Yeah. To think about what is the question that's driving me? I could use anything. How would I answer that question? Because if I don't have it in my lab, I'll go and get it as a, from my collaborators. If you're writing a training grant, it's important that that page tell me what training you need so I can see how the question needs particular training and you're going to get it in this grant so that you can answer that training. And thinking about what is the, what is the outcome going to be? So if I do this experiment, what will I really learn? And if I don't get the expected result, what will I learn from the, the false result? What will I learn if my hypothesis is false? How will that change? That could be really exciting, actually. It could direct us in new directions. Uh, how can we do that? And so if you do that, how can you say you, you hate doing that? Because that's what grant writing is. But that's also what science is. And so uh, this should help make you a better scientist, which many people uh, coming through our program say, this has not only given me a community, but it's actually made me a better at my, at my other job at, at the science. And, and the third thing that I think is really important is that, especially during this pandemic, is that even if we do not change funding rates, because I'm at a university where people are really good and they get funded, if we can decrease stress and make people better communicators, then they will have more time to get in the lab and do the science. So decreasing stress, we actually take at the beginning of our workshop, we take a fear meter where we ask, where are you on a range of one to five about your knowledge, but also your fear. And then at the end, we redo the fear meter and you can see the numbers just shift. They get more knowledge and decrease stress. Uh, and this really helps, especially, you know, people with young families, young women in science, uh, that they are decreasing their stress and knowing that they have a support group. Uh, and that they know how to communicate so that they can focus on the science. So, so we do the same thing, right? Helping scientists do better science. Um, just before we wrap up the first, so this has been great, Matt. I knew you had a lot to say, but it, it's, been, I, I, it's been great just listening to you. I can see the people from my lab are going to see. Now I know where he gets it from. So, <laughs> so but, but just to finish up, I just wondered, do you, so having spent all this time invested in helping people write better grants, do you have any thoughts about the funding structures itself, about the way we fund science? Is there anything that you think should or could be changed? Well, I think the US system where we are uh, driving, we're supporting salaries from grants is not really a model that's tenable and sustainable. I think that uh, we need more grants that allow people to go in completely different directions. More grants that say, you've been really successful now, Go somewhere new. Uh, so we need more of those grants. In the States, I think that, that they are developing. And I always think we need more grants for trainees because if we teach these skills to trainees at an earlier stage and we reward them with some success, 
they are now on the path that's going to make them uh, better at it later on. So um, I think we should continue to have more and more grants that are focused on trainees and also transition from from mm -hmm. trainees into faculty, but also people who want to switch direction, give them the opportunity and the funding mm -hmm. to prove to themselves. So if you can get your own grant, it really allows you to uh, do your own ideas. And I, I think the more that we can do for junior people, uh, the better we'll be. You know, I think we, we need different types of grants for senior people. So grants that allow senior people to take on more time for mentoring and, and more time for perhaps, you know, impact in the field in different ways other than just their science. So I think we need a, a range of grants. I think the more options there are, the better. Uh, and I think people should be applying for the right types of things for them and their projects. Don't forget that much needed podcast grant. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, I, that's, I think that we do need grants to support science communication. Absolutely. Science communication. And we need grants to support creative ways to share science and creative ways to mm -hmm. train scientists. We need grants that support development of GPS type of activities yeah. uh, across the country and uh, around the world. And we also need grants uh, that support sharing experiences uh, across different cultures. So, you know, the French and European system and the, and the American system, there aren't many joint grants that we could do that are focused on this communication, ways to uh, articulate the science you want to do. So I think we need more of that type of thing. Okay. It's grants that uh, sustain the, the real job of being a researcher, not just doing experiments, but being communicators, mentors, teachers, building new relationship collaboration with the world, because science is international at the end. So I really like uh, your idea on this. Thank you for sharing it with us. So we're going to take a, a break. And after the break, we'll hear more about, about math <laughs> behind the mentor. Hey, folks, don't run away. You're listening to The Lonely Piper with Renaud Pourpre and Jonathan Weissman, where our goal is to help scientists do better science. If you're enjoying the show and you want to learn more, you can follow us on Twitter at Lonely Pipette. And please share the podcast with your friends. If you don't want to miss any of our future episodes, you can subscribe to our mailing list and join our community. Click on the subscription link on our Twitter account. It's as simple as that. Take a few moments to get more tips from the Lonely Pipette. Welcome back. Uh, you're listening to The Lonely Pipette, and we're talking today to, to Matt, my, my twin brother. Second half, we want to hear more about, about you. And uh, so I, we haven't lived together for, for a, a while. So I wondered, um, do you have a morning routine and what does it look like? So, you know, if you're a twin, people ask you, you know, can you feel what your twin is doing now? <laughs> so I, I would... I, Uh, and, you know, to my response is always, ah, yeah, yeah. He just, oh, he just got attacked. Um, <laughs> my, my routine is probably pretty similar to Johnny's. Uh, so, or Jonathan's. I, I am a late person. I've always been a really late person, uh, late night person. Johnny and I actually, when we were, when we were students in Oxford, there were times when we would both work through the night and we would meet at a great greasy cafe eggs and uh, coffee, strong coffee, the Greek coffee in, in the morning before we <laughs> went back to, to shower. And, uh, so my morning routine is, uh, is not particularly early, but I get up um, around seven. I uh, check you know, my mail, <laughs> Twitter, the news. Uh, and then Johnny and I grew up in a, a, a traditionally uh, observant Jewish household. In the morning, I do uh, my prayer activities, which I doesn't take me so long, but is a ritual that I go through every morning. And um, it involves, uh, there's some ritual objects that we use as part of that uh, service. And I don't do the whole thing. I do sort of excerpts from the morning services, my own selection. It includes some, some song and uh, once a month, We, ha we recognize the new moon. And uh, on that day, I sing and dance around my house by myself. But it's also, I've included uh, meditation in it. So I um, took a mindfulness course during the pandemic that my wife had done and found very useful. And now all my family have done. So uh, I include some mindfulness in my morning practice. 
And then um, we are, I realize we are at the beginning of the year, right? We are January 11th. So uh, I still have my New Year's resolution. So I exercise. <laughs> <laughs> During the pandemic, I, I ran more than I've ever run. And then I make a s- strong cup of coffee and I read uh, the New York Times. And it's actually a, a physical version of the New York Times that arrives on my doorstep every morning. Then I get get ready and, and come to work. So it's actually, uh, I like reading the paper every morning and getting the news. It used to be that I would, you know, scream at the kids and drive them to the bus because they, they missed uh, the pickup. <laughs> I'm and still doing that. I, I would make lunch and everything, but my, my kids are now uh, out of the house. And my wife is actually a, a graduate student, so sometimes I make her lunch. But um, it, it's uh, it's much more relaxed than it used to be when we had little kids. And I like that it includes some uh, meditation and exercise, which sets me up for my day. Is there something about yourself that people or... Jonathan will be surprised to discover. You know, I uh, I don't know whether all your readers or listeners uh, will know that uh, that Johnny is a, a twin. So I am a twin with with Jonathan, and uh, so th- this experience of being a twin, I think, has impacted my life a lot. But perhaps fewer of your listeners will know that I'm also the father of twins. Very proud to be a father of a twin a girl and a boy. I am also the proud uncle of twins <laughs> because uh, Jonathan also has a set of boy called twins who are 10 years younger than uh, my twins. So uh, that is something perhaps people don't know. Um, and then thinking about it, I actually thought about this question because you've asked it to everybody. So I assumed it yes. was coming. <laughs> and I realized that there are probably people at different parts of my life who would be surprised and not surprised by things that I am now. So I think my high school chemistry teacher would probably be amazed that I'm actually a professor <laughs> in a medical school. <laughs> uh, my high school gym teacher would absolutely be flabbergasted that uh, I run on a regular basis because I was always <laughs> uh, a bad, uh, a bad at sports at school. Uh, and uh, I think, you know, my mother will not be surprised that I'm not good at gardening because she knew that already. So I know many of your previous guests have been into gardening. I'm not a gardener. <laughs> I have a, a meadow that is growing outside our, uh, our house. Uh, things that surprise Johnny. Um, I don't, I don't think I <laughs> surprise him. That was a, uh, a trick I, question. <laughs> I think he's amazing, but he knows that. You told us about meditation. I don't know if, if this is going to be your answer. It can, it, it can be something else, but what, what new belief or behavior uh, or habit uh, has most improved your, your life recently? Meditation has had an impact on my life. Uh, it's allowed me to see things in a calmer way. I was probably during the pandemic, you know, everyone had, I think, a, has had a different way of responding and had a different time when they found this particularly hard. But during that time, um, meditation did help me calm down and see some perspective. Um, and then I think, uh, you know, this, this career is very stressful. Uh, but I think with maturity, it becomes less overall stressful and I hope more enjoyable. So, um, you know, we're missing the things that we really did that were great parts of our career when we went to seminars and interacted with more people and traveled to conferences and, um, and shared more science. Um, but I think, you know, over the years, I've definitely, um, the things that's really stressed me at the beginning, uh, stress me far less. So that would be one tip or piece of advice for people starting their lab that, uh, you know, you can't avoid stressing about the people you recruit and the student who gets upset with you because you didn't give them enough attention or paper that gets rejected or, you know, You'll never get over these completely, uh, but they will become easier to manage, I think, over time. How, how have you dealt with this sort of endless rejection, failure, that's, you know, inevitable grants, papers, students choosing another lab? How do you, how do you deal with that? So I think uh, at the beginning, it was very hard to take. Um, I wanted everyone in my lab to be really happy and, and interact with everybody else and feel like I was doing everything right for them. And, you know, we obviously we wanted our papers to get into the best journal that they could. And I needed, I needed funding for the money for the lab. 
I think over time, I put it into perspective. I think one thing that helps is is always having things uh, staggered. So there's enough projects in the lab that there's always a project that's that's working, even when another one isn't. Uh, and I, I think when I did lab work, uh, I had the same approach. So you know, if ninety percent of science doesn't deliver, right? Doesn't work for some reason. Uh, then if you do 10 experiments, you have one result. But if you do 100 experiments, you get 10 results. So uh, the more different projects I had and the more- That's why I had so many kids. <laughs> uh, we see, we only had kid kids once, but that was the most successful thing that we ever did. Uh, and I'm very proud of them. And they are turning into- amazing young adults uh, who are impacting the world and I'm very proud of them. Uh, so that one I, I know I did right. Um, so I think having having diversity uh, helps. Mm -hmm. So uh, having grants that are staggered, having papers that are at different stages, you know, we, we have a paper that uh, we're addressing reviewers' comments. So that's, you know, at a I would like to say late stage, but it's not a late stage because it's going to take us a long time. Uh, and then I have uh, this week uh, two reviews that we're submitting. So they're at final stage. And then we have projects that are literally just starting. So I think having things at different stages and also having people in the lab at different stages mm -hmm. has really helped. And also having the lab form a culture that supports each other so that I'm not dealing with every you know gel that doesn't work, that there are people in the lab who really give amazing um, advice to the junior people in the lab uh, and they're learning their own mentoring skills while they do it. So that that's helped a lot. So I think learning to delegate is really key. You're working in the lab until midnight. Uh, you're doing these grants and the papers and uh, you have this beautiful family. So how, how have you managed to balance that? So I, I don't think balance is uh, for me the right term. Uh, I think it's more about integration. So um, when you're working on a grant, you want to work on the grant. When you're watching a movie, you want to watch the movie. So uh, I don't think that you have to balance everything. I don't think when I'm writing a grant, I have to also at the same time spend the same amount of time, you know, uh, cooking cooking dinner. <laughs> so uh, I think it's a manage a, a matter of integration. Uh, and there are times when you should be working on your grant. There are times when you don't have to think about grants. You want to be in the lab doing science. Uh, and there are times when you just want to be home cooking dinner and not thinking about your grant. So I think that this sort of like integration, I, that means that there aren't a lot of barriers. Uh, but one barrier that really is important to both Jonathan and me that's uh, helped us, I think both, is that we both take one day off a week where we do not work. So from the time it gets dark on Friday to the time it gets dark on Saturday, I do not touch my computer. I do not do any work. Uh, I've never done this my entire career. That one day off the grid uh, is a time to refresh, mm -hmm. uh, spend time with family, community, read, uh, think about science, but think about it without the pressure of having yeah. to, to write it. And that, I think, has uh, been a savior for me. So that uh, Sabbath we take. Uh, on a weekly basis, uh, I think uh, has given me a lot of uh, grounding and allowed me to do other things in, inside my community. It looks like it, it's quite a good self-discipline. I mean, it's 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 something that, I don't know, I, I've heard so many researchers and I tried uh, also to do everything at the same time when I was in USA, I just burned myself. And for what I hear, it's it's really good to 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 see how you keep being self um, disciplined to take this day to have this break because I know that some people cannot. It's 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 so complicated to sometimes to get detached to your work to research because this is it's a big part of your life sometimes. Yeah, I think it's you know I wonder whether I think for for younger people it's sometimes harder. Uh, to actually be disciplined enough about it, but as you get older, you really begin to appreciate the rewards that it that it brings. And so, I'm much more religious <laughs> about uh, doing it now not not in religious way, but in a uh, in a disciplined way than mm -hmm. perhaps I was uh, when I was younger. And it, it's amazing if I told you take off Wednesday and don't answer your email on Wednesday, you would find it really hard. But uh, this sort of forced separation from uh, our electronic world is mm -hmm. uh, really remarkable. Uh, and I probably wouldn't do it if you told me it had to be Wednesdays, but, but having it defined by our community and our tradition, um, I think is really powerful. 
So, so you have this multi-integrated life, right? Can you think of an achievement that you're particularly um, proud of and, and why? I'm particularly proud of uh, raising two wonderful kids. Uh, that is, I think, the biggest achievement. And when, when people in my lab have kids, I say this is going to be the most important thing you'll ever do. Uh, I'm proud of the trainees that, I've, that have come through my lab. I've been very lucky to have great people come through the lab. They've formed a part of my life. Uh, I am, to me, being a mentor is, means that I'm committed to the success of their career for the rest of my career. So I'm still in touch with many of them. Uh, on a daily basis, people who've left my lab, I'm still in touch with. And I'm very proud of all that they've done. So some are in um, science, running labs. Uh, some are in medicine, uh, treating patients. Some are in industry, developing uh, new therapeutics and, and tools. Uh, some are in science communication. And some are in um, science funding uh, and in uh, venture capital. Uh, so they've done a range of careers, uh, and I'm really excited by that. It's great to uh, still connect to them and have them part of this sort of, you know, Weizmann Lab experience. Um, I've had two labs, and the two labs even have connections between them. During the pandemic, we had uh, we had some happy hours where I had my first graduate student who joined my lab in 1997, and uh, a student who just joined my lab in 2020. So uh, they were on the call together. So it's great to have these people part of our, our wider network, and I'm very proud of them. And then I'm also proud of uh, GPS. I'm proud of our ability to form communities uh, that have peer-to-peer -peer mentoring as a central tenant and uh, allow people to, to do science, just like you. So we, we're going to end up with a, a few rap, rapid-fire questions. So if you uh, could put one sentence uh, on the door of your lab, what would it be? Have fun. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Do you want to, to explain us why have fun? <laughs> I think this should, we should have fun doing whatever we're doing. Like, uh, if it's in the lab, we should have fun. If we're traveling to conferences, we should have fun. And, and, you know, this has been such a fun thing to do. Uh, we are very privileged that we get to choose the things that we do and, uh, how we spend our time. And I think this communicating to each other across the seas, uh, is a, just a wonderful experience. So I want to thank you for, for giving me this opportunity to have a, an hour of fun with you. Is there a book that you would recommend to help scientists uh, in their crazy life? <laughs> oh, I would recommend 30 Seconds Genetics, an introduction to, to the field, written by Jonathan Weitzman with his co-writer, Matthew Weitzman. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that is when we had fun writing that. Can you think of a time when things didn't go as planned? And, um, and how did you get things back on track? Yeah, yesterday. <laughs> um, how did I get things back on track? Um, I woke up with a fresh perspective and um, try to believe that, that, that we could do it. We can make it better. Have you, have you struggled with a particular fear during your career that you want to share with us and our listeners? And how did you overcome it? So I think I... <laughs> Perhaps I share this, I think, with my twin brother. It must be genetic. I'm full of insecurity, so I have lots of fears. Um, I think uh, one fear is the the fear of um, yeah uh, my work not having as much impact uh, and relevance as I would like it to have or like to think it has. Uh, and I think that doing things outside just the science has allowed me to have an impact uh, as a sort of complement to that. Uh, and then um, there is this fear of... Um, Publishing a paper with a major flaw that we didn't see. Uh, so not being open to all angles when we look at this, our own science. Our favorite last question. <laughs> What advice would you give to yourself if you met yourself 20 years ago? And, and I was there. But <laughs> What would be your advice to, to yourself at the beginning of your career? I think you're going to do things beyond your wildest dreams. Be more successful than you could have imagined. And make sure that you do stop to enjoy it along the journey because uh, you can do it. 
we need now to start to wrap up. So this, I got to tell you guys, this is amazingly fun. <laughs> like, I, I do. I tell you one fear offline that I, so I, my fear is that, that people will think I'm a fraud. <laughs> and, and, and that's, Why that's do you want fear. this to be offline? <laughs> this is amazing. <laughs> This is my fear doing doing things like this. I don't know whether you feel that. Well, you're asking the questions. You're not providing the answers. That the people from my lab will say, "Nah, he's full of shit." <laughs> <laughs> I think that that's that's a, a fear that I had. That people say, "Yeah, you're full of shit," because um, uh, we we aren't always we aren't always perceived as we would like. We we think we are, uh, and so having the authenticity. Uh, you know, there's an amazing, um, I will say, I'll say something that, that perhaps you, like, I'll say something religious again. I don't want to be everything religious, but it is a big part of my life. There's this amazing point in the Bible where Abraham is asked to uh, go through a series of tests. And, and at, at one point he is, um, God calls out to him, Abraham, Abraham. And he says his name twice. At that point, one interpretation is that um, his potential for what he could be and his reality for what he is have merged into one. And so he he answers with one voice, I am here. And the authenticity of being able to fulfill, fulfill your potential and have your potential the same as your actuality is uh, really powerful. And I hope that one day I get that. So where can people find out about you and your work? Okay, so um, they can visit me on Twitter. I was encouraged to join Twitter by a, a young scientist who I met at a conference, and I promised him on August 1st I would join Twitter, and I did. And he said, August 1st, where are you, Matt? And I was, I was there. <laughs> so I'm on Twitter, and uh, not as many followers as the wonderful uh, Lonely Pipette, which I encourage everyone to, to listen to. Uh, and I always talk about at the end of every uh, workshop I give. I would love to say my just, website. Just, just to clarify. On Twitter, you are Weitzman Lab. I am the Weitzman Lab. Yeah, not to, be <laughs> not to be confused with Weitzman Lab P, which is Weitzman Lab Paris, which is slowly yes. catching up. I'm Weitzman Lab, and you can see me on Twitter. And uh, my brother encouraged me to explore OKRs, objectives with key results. And so my OKR for the year is to develop an amazing website. And my key results uh, have been initiated, uh, including uh, I have uh, found a great artist who is going to do my website, and I pay her rent. That's my <laughs> daughter. So she is going to do my website. And so we will, I promise this year, have a great website where you can find out more about our science. Uh, so that will happen. Um, and then uh, you can also feel free to uh, reach out to me directly through uh, Twitter, or you can email me at chop. And uh, if you want to send me your grant, I'm happy to read anyone's AIMS page uh, and give you quick feedback as an outside uh, reviewer. Uh, just my quick response to uh, what you've written, whether you articulate the question, how you'll answer the question, whether you're the right person to do it. So th this has been amazing, <laughs> Matt. Um, so <laughs> we, we speak, we speak uh, every day. Uh, and and it, and yet it's been a pleasure to sit down for an hour with you. Um, you, uh, I'm full of admiration of of all that you're doing um, to help scientists be better scientists. And I think uh, uh, having having sent you my grant and and got your vicious feedback, um, I I um, on behalf of all the people you've helped, I want to really thank you. This is uh, you. Not only have you published great papers, and we published a couple together, but also this this. Uh, this massive commitment to, to mentoring and helping people articulate their grants is really uh, important for the community. Um, is there anything else you want to add? Any last minute thought? Uh, I want to thank you. This has uh, been fun. And uh, I would encourage anyone who is approached by the Lonely Pipette to say yes and spend an hour with the two of you. We can give you a, a few uh, names of people who said no. <laughs> <laughs> people who promised. Uh, I also want to thank you for, for this great podcast that, that gave us light during the depths of the pandemic. Um, really a, an ama amazing contribution to the, to the field. Uh, and I... I know that you're helping a lot of scientists. And I also think that uh, being able to see the two of you, I've, I've heard you on 
on the Lonely Pipette on the podcast, being able to see the two of you and connect, you know, in our human way, in our natural way, uh, to talk about uh, authentically, like what's important to us, is a, an amazing privilege. So um, I hope that that someone else out there finds these few tips that we gave uh, helpful for them, and uh, that they will have fun. Uh, doing the science that they do and communicating it to the people who would give them the money, but also uh, the people who will learn from the science and, and build on it in the future. So that's it for this episode. Thank you for joining us at The Lonely Pipet. We hope that you learned something new, that something resonated with your own experiences, or that you just enjoyed the science. Let us know your thoughts on Twitter at Lonely Pipet. And please share it with your friends in the lab. If you want to join our community, you can subscribe to the Lonely Pipette mailing list or mail us by following the link available on our Twitter profile. You will receive the next episodes directly in your mailbox. How cool is that? Stay tuned for the next show and remember, you might feel like a lonely pipette, but it doesn't mean you're alone. Tips from the Lonely Pipette can help you to do better science. A bientôt! A bientôt!